This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Agua. You mentioned that there's a lot of inmates, right? Oh, so being too that many. Way too many. Right. So being that there's a lot of... There's no question there's too many. There's no right, right. country so you in made the a good, of the world that has more inmates than we do. Like, right. We so you made that. a good point. You made a good point. Because there's a lot of inmates, there's a lot of positive interactions that aren't being documented. The only thing that you hear is what's sensationalized to the media. Mm-hmm. When was the last time that you've heard an inmate change their life because of the work being done behind the wall? Because that's what I see every day mm-hmm. through my experience. So you're right. There is a lot of inmates, which means there's a lot of stories that are not being told, the stories of success, the story of the inmates that do do the right thing when they get released. And this is why we want to do this conversation. You you speak as as a prison uh, correctional uh, uh, administrator and you have a voice. And that's why we want to hear that perspective, because the general perspective in America is that prisons are a mess. Hi, everybody. I'm Rick Sanchez, and uh, we talk about journalistic truths. We talk about Latino truths. Hell, we just talk about truths. And, you know, there is uh, something. Oh, I need to tell you something. I need to tell you something. We're growing like a weed lately. So many people have been listening to this podcast, and it's so exciting that they're doing so. But if you could do me a favor, apparently there's something that helps us a lot. If you could do me a favor, if you're listening to this podcast, if you've become a regular and you listen to this podcast because you like some of the things that we talk about, and sometimes you think I actually make some sense, other times you think I'm full of crap, which is perfectly fine, by the way. Um, There's a thing that you need to do, apparently, when you listen to a podcast, it really helps if you leave a review. If you were able to leave a review, and I guess they give you numbers one through five, I'm partial to five. I think that's a really great number. (laughs) So if you get a chance, do that, because that helps us then continue to do this. I'm going to start with a question today. Which country in the world do you think you're more apt to be imprisoned? Which country? And if you were to be in prison anywhere in the world, which country would you not want to be imprisoned in? The answer is United States, for one, and United States for two. You know, it's funny because I I hear in the media all the time, and hell, I hear in the media, I'm part of the media. I've been a journalist all my life, as you know, working at CNN and Fox News and NBC and all that stuff. I've had shows there, and I I don't see this story covered as much as maybe it should be covered, except when they do it in such a way where they just want to, like, get cheap ratings points from it um, by essentially exploiting the story. But I think it's important to know that we have some issues with our prison system in the United States. The numbers are out of this world. When I tell you some of these numbers, you're going to go, wow, really? Seriously? I mean, by some estimates, anywhere between 7 million to 10 million people are in prison right now in the United States. And by the way, that includes people who are on probation and parole and everything in the system. 7 to 10 million I mean, that's essentially the population of Miami and Boston and Seattle and Los Angeles and San Francisco. And you could probably throw in your hometown as well. Put all the people who lives in those, who live in those towns together. And that's the population of the people in the United States who are in prison. That's just about more than any country in the history of the world. And when we go around saying about all these countries out there that are autocratic, aren't you happy you live in the United States? Because imagine if you lived in China or Venezuela or or Iran or uh, Russia, all these countries which are bad, and we perceive them as bad, and they're our enemies, and they're supposed to be very autocratic and hard to live in those countries. Well, guess what? You add all of the people who are in prison in those countries together, and they still don't come close to the number of people who are in prison in our country. Why is that? Why is that? I, you know, I don't know. And why is it that when people come out of prison, most of the time they come out worse? Why is that? It's, you know, amazing. Amazing to look at these things. Um, 
And then what we spend, something between 80 billion to $100 billion in incarceration in this country. 80 billion, Jerry, 80 billion to $100 billion in this country. Talk about a truth that nobody's talking about, that we should be talking about. I mean, yeah, there's bad people out there and they should be incarcerated. But are we doing this right? I, I want to spend some time talking about this because I, I, I think this is a phenomenally important topic. And it says a lot about us. You know, it says a, about us. It says a lot about us as a country. And yeah, we all know that if you're poor, you're more apt to be in prison than somebody who's not poor. If you're black, you're more apt to be in prison than somebody who's, you know, not black. If you're Latino, you're more apt to be in prison than somebody who's not Latino. If you're a Latino or you're a, or you're a, an African-American kid in the United States and you get caught smoking pot, you go to jail. If you're not Latino or African-American, they call your parents. Tell them to come pick you up. That's just the way it is. And yeah, and, and, and your life can end up ruined for all kinds of reasons. Anthony Ganji is a corrections professional, has been most of his life. He wrote a book called Correctional Manipulation, and he's good enough to join us, as is Connie Eileen. She's a former correctional health uh, services manager. She's now a criminal justice professor, and she's also the author of a book. The book her book is, is called The Cage Was Her Cocoon. What's up, Connie? How you doing? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Exciting to excited to be here. <laughs> well, because you know, I'm glad you are. So am I. I. I've been. This is a topic that I think uh, Americans um, deep down all are um, interested in. Because if we weren't, then why is it that every movie about prisons is a bestseller, and so is every book about prisons? And, and why did television shows go to the top of the ratings whenever they do uh, these exploitation series on prisons? And if you go to YouTube, the, the things that have the most hits are when people do, you know, uh, videos on the worst prison in the world, the worst convict in the world, the meanest guard in the world, whatever, you know, we just make a list, put a number on it and people flock to it. So we are, you know, Anthony, I, I, why are we, Anthony, why are we so... What is it about prisons that infatuates us so much? What is it? Because I think people know very little about it and they're willing to take whatever source entertains the idea that they know what's happening behind the prison wall. So I think it's people being thirsty for information and then going to the first source that gives them that information. Is it safe and fair to say that prisons in the United States are a mess? It depends. I mean, from what perspective? You know, to be honest, you know, right now, staff, um, professionally staff, we, we need help running the prison system. The prison systems are going to exist regardless. Mm -hmm. So having said that, we need resources to help run the prison system, which means that if you're going to facilitate change when the pendulum swings, you have to facilitate the change through the staff that know how to operate the prison as opposed to unfair generalizations based on one account. Uh, and then generalizing that account as the actions of the facilities across the nation. Well, you just said something important. And this is, I think, what we have to talk about. We don't have enough people to do the jobs in all the prisons. What you're really saying is we've got too many inmates, Rick Sanchez. We've just got too many inmates. M my guess is we're arresting too many people instead of arresting the really bad people who should be behind bars. What do you think of that, Connie? Well, I mean, I think that's a reality, right? So the reality is that there is a, a framework in America, which includes, you know, uh, the prosecution and includes the courts, it includes police, and all of that leads to corrections, right? Mm -hmm. And until we start addressing the issues and the other avenues that sort of funnel these citizens into the prison system, we're going to have an issue of overcrowding and we're going to constantly see this tilt against there being enough staff, right? Because staffing mm. ratios are, are certainly compromised based on the number of people who are in prison. Well, I've heard stories, you've heard stories, and we all have people who probably in our communities have told us about what it's like to be in prison. And what frightens me is a young person is in prison 
And yeah, they screwed up. They did something they probably should not have done. But suddenly they end up behind bars in an environment that makes them worse, not to mention can literally destroy their minds, their psyche, and everything else for the rest of their life. Everything from drugs to rape to murder to all of the things that we could imagine could happen to a human being exists in certain prisons. Not all, but certain prisons. So what we've done is we've taken a person out of society. Maybe they deserve to be castigated. I wouldn't argue with that. But we've actually made him a hardened criminal as a result of what we've done with them. Is that is is that a fair comment to make? And no, I'll, I I'll, I'll go, Anthony. You go. You go first. No, I, I'm going to disagree. Haven't been working in the system for 20 years. If uh -huh. I allow that statement, I'm going to minimize all the work and hard effort that goes from our civilian staff, like our religious providers, our social service providers, our medical. I mean, back in the day prisons could have been seen as warehouses, but as the pendulum has swung, I think there's a balance between holding someone accountable, but then also providing them with the needs uh, that they're supposed to have. A lot of inmates may even come with mental health concerns that haven't even been figured out on the outside that we figure out on the inside. Same thing with medical issues. So to sit there and say that they're in the worst place. I've had parents that are thankful that their child has entered the facility because if they weren't, their life could have been worse. But the information, so I, I, but 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 what you're saying is anecdotal. I had a parent who once told me I had a kid. If, if well, we it could go both ways, though, wouldn't you agree? Because we're going on an unfair generalization. So I'm going through my personal experience of working behind the wall. So with that said, it's been my experience that I've worked with dedicated staff that do make the effort every day to change what could be seen as impossible situations. I'm sure Co Connie, who represents civilians would agree with that, but this is coming from experience and not yeah. from some unfair generalization that's based on uh, one account at one facility when there's many of other kinds. You mentioned that there's a lot of inmates, right? Oh, so too many, way too many. No, I didn't only mention there's two. There's no question there's too many. There's no right, right. country so in the history good, of the world that has more inmates than we do. Like, right, we so you made that. a good point. You made a good point. Because there's a lot of inmates, there's a lot of positive interactions that aren't being documented. The only thing that you hear is what's sensationalized through the media. Mm -hmm. When was the last time that you've heard an inmate change their life because of the work being done behind the wall because that's what I see every day mm -hmm. through my experience. So you're right. There is a lot of inmates, which means there's a lot of stories that are not being told, the stories of success, the story of the inmates that do do the right thing when they get released. So I, 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 I know some people think of prisons as it's a wall and there's no turning back. I've seen it as a place of hope because there are people that are dedicated to changing those in individuals. And I speak on behalf of the people that I've witnessed do it through impossibilities. So yeah. and again and 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 to be honest with you, it's an unfair generalization to think that you know when someone goes into a prison, it's a dead end and they can't do anything. Because if I agree with that, then then it, 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 what is it saying about the people that I supervise who believe in what they do, who have value and purpose behind what they no, do? No, listen, it's I take your point, and this is why we want to do this conversation. You you speak as as a prison uh, correctional. Uh, uh, administrator, and you have a voice, and that's why we want to hear that perspective, because the general perspective in America is that prisons are a mess, and that chances are when you go to prison, you're going to end up worse than how you came in. Connie, uh, I, wanna I want you to react to that. Is, is Anthony right? Am I full of crap? Are prisons actually a good place? <laughs> So I have to say that there are every every prison has its own culture and there are certain cultures in prison where it's all about reform and it's all about rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. Are there places and spaces with a black market of things that happen within the prison sub subculture like it runs? Absolutely. So we're not going to sort of deny that that happens. But from our experiences, I could speak on from my experience. There are people who are trying their best to make sure that inmates aren't cycling through the system, that they do get the support that they need in order tr to transition successfully back into the community. Yeah, but I now, know. I know but, but hold on, guys. I know there are people who are trying. Nobody's mm -hmm. saying prison guards and correctional officers are bad people and they wake up every morning saying, how can I screw up the life of the next guy who becomes an inmate in my prison? I don't think anybody is saying that. I, I, I think what most people perceive about prisons in the United States is that as good a people as they may be, 
as good as their intentions may be, the system is ramshod with problems, with overcrowded conditions, and you can't protect that 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 18, 19 year old kid in the middle of the night from uh, a grown ass man, as we like to say, who is going to come and uh, well, let me just say it: sexually abuse him. Does, let me ask a question. Does perception negate evaluated experience? Of course not. So, I mean, so so here we are. We're two professionals telling you this is what we've seen through our walks of life. And yes, we've seen also the other side of the spectrum, the, the other side of, of, of people doing foolish things. Having said that, to blame the system and not hold people accountable, I mean, you know, that's the thing. I mean, once they break that, they break away what the system means. So I, 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 you can't use negative behavior to define the system. You hold the people accountable and the system still is the system. So my biggest concern is the perception is based on individual actions that break away accountability from the individual and use the system as an excuse to push whatever political agenda. My 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 argument is here is this. What's I political what about the, the agenda? What why is it poli- that the system, what's political? That the system the system is bad. The system's at fault. No, it's not. There, but what's political about gonna, that? What, why do, well, what why, do why does a political what is what is the political gain from saying it seems to me the prisons in the United States are a mess where, where what do I going to have people make me the mayor of Miami because I said that or the governor of Florida no I'm saying the argument usually comes about the criminal justice system it usually comes from the extreme left uh-huh. it does it, it comes from the extreme left I'm not saying you're pushing the political side but it mm-hmm. usually does and when you defend it you defend it not saying you just in general no no I understand we no, try, we're having a conversation we I mean, try to defend it from personalized experience which gets negated because of the perception that you know what because I have the power of the media I can put any message I want out there and because I have the power to reach millions that message becomes more powerful but yet it's less truthful having said that two people right here know more about this profession than any journalist could ever imagine, than any political person could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. And when we tell you that there's good happening behind the wall, I don't care what the journal, what 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 the news is putting out there. I know what I see every day. I see the struggles of doing something great for the people that are behind the wall. But I've also seen good intent get misused. I've seen people try to implement policies based on good intent into a world that knows how to misuse that and manipulate. I wrote a whole book called Inmate Manipulation Decoded, and that's based on how policies get manipulated based on good intent. When people come in to help the individuals behind the wall, they have to remember something. They're helping the individuals behind the wall within the fine parameters of what the job is expected. I'm not helping the inmate to help the inmate. I'm helping it because that's what the job is expected. If you don't have that middle road, so, there are inmates that will manipulate that effort to help so, and then go ahead and now we work on the wants of the inmates as opposed to the needs of the facility. So what you just said is that people come in with good intentions, but then there's something that happens that destroys that good intention. No, and you end you, up with you, a bad. What, what, you, you blamed it on something. What are you blaming it no, on? No, no, so, no. You, 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 there, you missed something there. I said policies are created on good intent right. that wind up getting twisted behind the wall when there are certain inmates that may twist that. What does that for mean? What, okay, so what does that mean? That the, they get it twisted behind the wall by people, inmates. Right. When you have people from the outside trying to create changes that they feel will benefit the inside, they don't know how the inside world works. So what they do is they create these policies based on the perfect situation. Like this is what's going to happen in the perfect world. Yet in corrections, what do we do? We navigate through a world that's full of imperfections. Mm -hmm. And having said that, we have to do our best to try to navigate good intent, which is what we're trying to do in a world that's going to try to manipulate it. And at the end of the day, there's universal precaution. And, and it's funny because everybody spends all their time worrying about the rights of one individual. And I get that. But as a facility, we worry about the rights of every individual. And that's where the biggest conflict is in corrections, because most of the time when people are fighting for the rights of one individual, the problem is, is they're negating the fact that we have many individuals. And sometimes the rights of one could impact the many. And that could impact our ability to run a safe and secured operations. You speak well, and you should be admired for protecting your particular class and your particular uh, uh, colleagues and peers as uh, corrections of uh, employees uh, well, because you, you do. I mean, you're, you're here, obviously, to say 
We are good people. We're doing everything that we possibly can. And everything you've ever heard about problems in prisons in the United States is absolute bullshit invented by the Invented by the liberal. Invented by the liberal. You don't have to. I didn't say that. You don't have to. I said, listen, <laughs> I'm not, I, I have no problem holding people accountable for their actions. For My what? what if, is, okay, so let's is, do this. So let's do this. What is wrong with the prison system? Nothing. It's perfect. No, I think what is wrong with the prison system right now is there's a misperception on how it's ran and the people that are making changes are not filtering the changes through the staff that know what's needed best. So what you just said is, okay, so there's a lot of big words that mean nothing until I define them. So what you just said is that we need to listen more to the corrections facilities, uh, employees. And if if we did, the prisons would be run a lot better. I think it could be run more balanced. I think that there's a balance between, believe it or not, what the So then tell me need. this. I get it. I get it. I get it. So tell me this. What are the outside people doing wrong? And don't give me this. Uh, they come in with these perceptions that don't fit the reality. Well, the only no, thing No, I don't is, want is that. that. I want specifics. Tell me specifically right, so, what they're doing so, wrong. So first off, part of it is perception. So you, you kind of loaded what I could say. Part of huh. it's going to be unfair perception because here's what happens. They get information that's not filtered. They get it from possibly the inmate population. I'm not saying there could be, there, there's always concerns. We're run by human beings. No system is perfect, right. but just like no staff is perfect. No inmates going to be perfect. Having said that, instead of them trying to figure out what the issues are, they go right to the nearest place that will that it's going to give them some level of what they feel is the proper understanding what i think they could do is actually start sitting at the table with people who work in this profession who have experience and then we could see some honest change because at the end of the day guess what my life is dependent on good changes so why would i not be invested in that but but why would i not what be do we need to change to hear changes? you tell it last question and then i'll go to connie what do we need to change? To hear you tell it, there's nothing to change. We it's almost to, perfect. Yes, all there is stuff to change. There has to be some level of accountability in the system that holds people responsible. Even, even us. We're going to hold our people responsible for too when they do something wrong. But there has to be some level of accountability. I think the problem is people think that punitive it automatically breaks away from rehabilitation and it doesn't accountability is a level of rehabilitation and right. i think what we could do is build some trust in the people that operate the system and stop carrying generalized animosities as this person here and his actions defines the actions of everyone else because right. all that does is disenfranchise good people from doing their job at the end of the day there are many people behind that wall are breaking their backs to do what they can for the population only to be circumvented by people from the outside who want to do a generalized sweeping change over something that didn't even affect that facility. It's something that instead, let's hold the person accountable. Let's see what we could do together to move forward. And let's move forward together as a team instead of an isolated fashion that doesn't benefit anybody in the long run. Because if it truly did, we wouldn't be in this situation because all the changes that have been created so far haven't done anything because they've been on balance. Because at the end, the pendulum swings. And me and Connie, we've been doing tear talk for years. We remain in the middle. The road is always going to be compromise because there's always going to be a criminal justice system but to take if, if there was a bad journalist out there and i said that journalist oh there's plenty trust me right right so how <laughs> unfair would it be if i told you that bad journalist is, is what you're about right now people do that you're all the time unfair right because if you connect to what you do you take that you take that you know personally right so at the end of the day same thing don't judge the system by the actions of one Look deeper than that, because the system itself is not based on negative actions. It's based on what we're supposed to be professional and doing our job. At the end of the day, I think it's an unfair bias relate, related to generalized animosity. I'm saying, people, well, you know, it's funny how you are very, you are taking this very personally. You obviously have a chip on your shoulder about this issue, which is good. No, I don't say I'm glad you do. Passion. I'm glad I do, too, by the way. It's good to have a chip on your shoulder. It means you defend yourself and what you do. Um, the argument you're making is, you know, I'm, I'm sick and tired of people saying <clears throat> that we have these issues in the United States, that uh, the prison system is a mess. And as a prison uh, correctional officer, uh, I take exception to that. I get that. I understand that. And I respect you for, 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 for defending your peers. Uh, Connie, you say what? What I say is that at the end of the day, there is a policy, there's a procedure for everything that goes on in that facility, in any facility. 
So, for example, you raise the issue of the, you know, young person who comes in and then they get raped at night. Right. Like there's a whole process of classification and keeping people separate. And so what we have what we see happening is you'll have someone from outside who says, oh, we can't we shouldn't isolate. We shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do that. Here's all these things that we they say we shouldn't do. But there has to be some way for us to try to protect that young person that has come in or some way that we can kind of isolate or separate those people who we know are predators. Mm. But any action we take from the outside looking in or when the outside weighs in, they only weigh in on the separation and not necessarily on the issue that is presented at hand Mm. when we no longer have the tools that can help us to manage this population and to keep people safe. What tools? It's like we say, we don't keep them safe, but then anything we can do to keep them safe. You said something, and I need to get a better explanation of it for it from you. When you say they're not giving us the tools, what tools are they not giving you? Money. Money. Okay. So you're Money underpaid? could pay for more programming, could pay for uh, 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 more services. For, I mean, I mean, it opens up the door to helping us transition them into the real world. I mean, educational services would be great. How about access to helping them get better college education? And we're, we're providing it on a very limited budget. So what we could do is maybe we could work together to get funding to help them transition. So money money, money is key. I mean, we want to run these things. We have people in play. We also need money for staffing. We need better incentive. You kept on calling them guard. It's, it's correctional officer and it's mm-hmm. correctional officer for a reason. It's part of the evolution. You know, it's where we're at in corrections. So having said that, our respect towards the profession would also help because right now there's people that are behind the world wall that want to feel motivated in the work. They want to feel inspired, but it sucks when the outside sees them in a negative light and you can't win because there are people that want the effort. Then there are people like, well, they're just inmates who care. It's like, yeah, but for that person, all they see is a human. And at the end of the day, they're doing it for the right reasons. What do we do in the back them up when they want to run programs or when they want to do something extra, maybe with when it comes to religious services or education. I mean, we, I think the tools are the money to facilitate the programs and stuff we need to transition them back into society. Because here's the funny thing. If most of them weren't in prison, they wouldn't have gone to school. They wouldn't have taken programs like Thinking for a Change and Parenting and all we this other stuff. We spend $80 billion in incarceration in this country. How much of that goes to medical? How much of that goes to mental health? How much of that goes to programs? So you said what we spent. Can you individually break that down to tell me where that goes to? Because right now, if that's what we're spending, it's not enough because I know we always need money for programming. So that's having more- said by the way, that you $80 billion dollars is more, more money. That $80 billion is more than the Department of Education, more than the Department of Commerce, more than the Department of the Treasury. So then let me it's ask almo- you a question. It's almost like there we- may be everybody, there may be everybody's funding things wrong. Because at the end of the day, you said $80 billion without specifically breaking down where that money goes to. Mm-hmm. So having said that, I said money needs to go to the programming. So if they have $80 billion and it can go to that, it can go to that. How about you talk to the legislator and see if they're willing to send some money to programming and getting more staffing to help that with that pension? But at the end of the day, if that's $80 billion, you still haven't told me how much of that went to program. Did you even look that up? No. What I'm saying is it's a question of allocation, right? So obviously you're arguing that the money should be allocated in a different way. I'm arguing that $80 billion is ridiculously too much and that we essentially are probably incarcerating way, way, way too many hey, people. Hey, Connie, for, for a hospice guy on care... Uh, that's in, let's say, a prison where they could be dying and older guys. We deal with a lot of older individuals who are sickly that have done some heinous crimes. Mm. Having said that, we have inmates that are probably suffering from terminal diseases and stuff like that. Would you assume medical and mental health could be a big portion of those bills to make sure that we take care of the inmates that are in our care? So, So that's exactly where I was going with it. We spend so much money on inmates Uh, Just stabilizing them on medication, stabilizing them medically, stabilizing them mentally. Right. And so with that said, we've had inmates come in with rare brain disorders or blood disorders and all of those things have to be taken care of. Right. And all that allocation, like I don't know the breakdown of the allocation, but I know that a lot of it is spent on medical and mental health care in the prisons. And is that where they should be in order to get that? That kind of care, 
right? It, they, they probably shouldn't be there. Mm. And so at what point do we start to transition those individuals who are aging out of prison, those individuals who may not necessarily co- uh, qualify for a, a medical um, a medical release, but probably should be released because they're too sick to still be in prison. But shouldn't it so be I on both sides? Layered. I mean, uh, just like you're arguing that there are probably people who are too sick to be uh, behind bars because there's no way they could do anything but be in a bed and possibly pass away very soon anyway. Just like there are people on the other side who are just too young and too immature to be put in a prison facility, and maybe we should find another way of dealing with them. I guess I'm just arguing whether the prison system has just gotten too big for well, its the, own britches in this country. The, you know, the and one I'm not thing saying is, that is in that, an accusative way. Don't get mad at me. Well, the one the one thing. No, I get it. It's fine. Hey, the one thing is is that most of them won't get the medical care like that on the streets. That's why a lot of them come in. I've known pregnant females that knew exactly what crime to commit, so they can go ahead and give birth to the facility because they knew that the facility would cover that. And as for the younger people, when you have younger people that are very impulsive, sometimes you have to make a choice. Like this person has to stop. We have to find something to rehabilitate him. Sometimes putting him in the facility, I know people look at his dead end, but the parents know where this child's at. They know he's there. They know the streets could be more dangerous at a time. So you know what? This is going to give them the environment where hopefully we can provide a safe environment so the person could focus on changing on their lives. Because I'm going to tell you something. You know what the scariest thing is? Is when you're trying to change your life on the streets and you're being targeted by gangs. Hmm. So you would argue that uh, a young person who uh, maybe is uh, somewhat wayward, it would be good for their parents to uh, incarcerate him if he's well, committed you said a crime. Somewhat wayward. How would you define somewhat wayward? Because well, somebody who's committing somebody who's committing crimes. Somebody. Who, I, yeah, I'm a parent. The, I know explain. my son is stealing. I know he's uh, robbing houses in the neighborhood. I'm going to call the police and I'm going to have him arrest him because I think that would essentially change him and that would be good for him. I, you I, you I think can make that statement about- today in America. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right. So I think the funny thing is, is that when we look at crimes, we should look at the consequences of the crime, because even simply stealing could affect somebody. Having said that, each individual is based on their potential to change. If we're making all efforts on the streets and it's still not to happen, is a chance that he can go ahead and steal again to support a drug habit or overdose? Or maybe eventually here's what's going to happen. I'm still in support of drug habit. But now, you know, I, I have to increase the habit. So now I wind up hurting somebody because there's always the potential that's weighed in. You may see what the crime is in the moment. We see what the the crime could be. So we have to weigh that in. And then we make a decision based on the person's potential, not in the moment, but what their potential is to commit a greater crime. And if I have faith in this person, if I believe this person could change, then maybe I'm willing to take a risk. But what's the risk? Someone else getting hurt? Someone else getting something stolen from them? I mean, there's a risk behind. I mean, everybody wants to focus on- But even in the risk, right? Like they would have to get through a three sections of a system in order for them to even end up in our care. Right. So like if we're looking at the way we criminalize the behaviors of adolescents, that's one thing. We know that their brains aren't fully developed and that they are impulsive and they are making decisions that aren't aren't thinking about their future. Mm. Right. If we think about what's happening with our aging adults in general. Right. The geriatric population, not even in prison, but those who are out in the community Mm -hmm. who cannot afford to get medication and cannot afford all these things. Right. Like, I think we need to look at it's not just looking at. So here's what's going on in prison. Right. Because, yes, this is what's going on in prison. And we are sort of inundated with bureaucracy, right? Here's all the things you can and cannot do. Here's all the this, the that, the third. And we're still trying to be innovative and do the things we know we need to do in order to keep this population safe and as healthy as we can, given the resources that we have access to. So I think that's one thing, but there's so much more going on, I think, in our system in America that feeds into all of these people ending up in prison to begin with. Of course, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, the, the problem the problem doesn't begin. It's like I always say about police officers in the United States. 
you know, we have a tendency to want to bash police officers, but they're in the worst position of all. America has serious problems. Police officers end up literally policing those problems. They get to wear the badge to be the defenders of all our sins. So we look at them and say, oh, he's to blame. That's like blaming the messenger. It would be like blaming the, you know, a correctional officer for problems uh, that are inherent in the United States of America. I couldn't agree with you more that the problem you is inherent with, the ju- with everything that happens before the guy gets there. Right? What did you? What did you just? I do said right you there? said you said correctional officer, so you made my day. Uh, yeah, I make, yeah, I'm getting better at this. By the way, <laughs> you guys, I'm sure, as correctional officers. Uh, not to be confused with guards, by the way. Those are in westerns we used to watch when we were kids. Um, your pay is okay. I mean, I imagine I've looked, and you know, depending on what state you're in, you can make a pretty good buck. Sometimes not, not so, yeah. not such a good buck. But I'll tell you who is cashing it in. There are some four thousand companies in the United States that are associated with prisons now, and I've been looking at some of their numbers. They're some of them are publicly traded companies who've become billion dollar enterprises by essentially providing the services in the prisons. They make what you guys make uh, look like uh, you guys are poppers, by the way. What, yeah. what do you think of uh, what do you think of some of those folks? So uh, who goes first? Uh, doesn't matter. Or- oh, Connie, you, you haven't. Had a chance Listen, to talk. My okay, here's my, here's my spiel. We know that there's less regulations in sort of the private sector business world, right? Mm-hmm. You know, private sector prison, private sector prison operations, there are things that they can do or not do, and there are no ramifications for them. Um, so I think that's first and foremost. So they can become um, profitable, quite profitable, yeah. because the, the type of service or the level of services they're providing is not at a, a certain level standard that it should be at. Right. So, like, I'll, I'll just put that out there now. In, in other words, <laughs> there there there's there's less control on their ability to do things that may not be kosher, that may even be corrupt. Because after all, they are, they, it seems to me, are going to be driven by profit. Their motive is the bottom line. I mean, my God, that's the definition of a business. It's not like, you know, we're making anything up here. I own a business. I own several businesses. My job is to try and, you know, prove to my shareholders that I can make a lot of money. And sometimes that means doing things that I wish I didn't have to do because, well, that's, you know, that's people the, have to be let go and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, things, things just happen in business. And the, I, it, it, I, I asked this question from that foundation. Is it a good mix to have the pros- profit incentive in an area which, as, you know, Anthony describes, people are doing good for the prisoner or as good as they can do? Maybe that's right, the way so, I should postulate the question. I, I, I think that's a great, uh, I, I love your perspective on this and I love Connie's as well. I, because, uh, so a while ago, I think 2016 or 2017, maybe 2016, I was on uh, Reverend Al Sharpton show mm-hmm. uh, discussing privatized prisons. And one of the things we both agreed on um, was I don't think humans are, are meant for profit. Uh, I don't think so. I, yeah. I think that when you're answering to stake- stakeholders, you're looking to cut corners. Uh, in, our, in our mind, we're going to spend the money um, but again, you know, we, we try to save money, but we're not going to cut corners. I think a lot of private facilities would, um, use a camera as opposed to having a body, you know, hmm. they, they do whatever they can to save money because in the end they're responsible for turning a profit. And I think in this business, uh, it's sad to say, but in corrections, if I'm filtering every decision I make in an effort to save a dollar, I'm going to build a facility based on convenient practices that are going to wind up in the long run uh, systematically. uh, Literally, I'm going to I'm going to lose any safety and control in that facility. So profit driven facilities are not ideal. Uh, I would not agree with them, nor would I, I find myself backing them. Connie, what prison did you work in? Describe it for me. What, how, and maybe it would be good for me to understand, comparatively speaking, how would you rate it with perhaps other prisons out there? Were you in a... Well, describe it sure. yourself. So, so the, I started my correctional journey back in 2000 on Rikers Island in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a discharge planner for about nine months. I was promoted to manager, and mm-hmm. I ended up staying at Rikers Island for 10 years. 
Um, and then I was recruited to the Connecticut Department of Corrections, where I served as prison health services administrator for another five years for the women's prison. So certainly they are, there are significant difference between jail and prison. Aside from the length of stay, the, the ability to operate and provide services certainly varies, but the, the level of I guess churn that you would see in a jail is much more significant than what you would see in a prison. So you see people coming in and out of the jail, you know, they're gone for the weekend, they're back, they committed some crime. Like it's just, it's an ongoing cycle of recidivism. Whereas folks in prison, because they're there sentenced more than two years, you see them and you can actually try to stabilize, you can try to treat them um, operationally. It's a little more um, organized and less chaotic. Did you ever see something in any of those prisons that you were appalled by? Did you ever see something that made you complain about it, do something about it, or not do something about it? Because, look, let's face it, we all got to put food on the table for our kids. Listen, that's my role, right? So as an administrator, your role is you see something and you don't like it or you know what's contrary to what should be happening. It is your it is your job to speak up. Hmm. Right. So, yes, you know, working on Rikers Island, I saw things that just shouldn't be. And so I, I went up my chain of command and spoke to the people who I needed to speak to in order to implement some sort of corrective action. And it's the same thing working in the prison. You hmm. know, you see anything that's going awry, you go and you kind of take your lashes sometimes as the sort of the advocate, because they don't necessarily want you to be that advocate. Sometimes they want it to be status quo. But like I there's a level of integrity that I operate from. And so is it, can I see it and not say something? You know, I just can't. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, Anthony, same thing. What, t- tell me about your facility. You, 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 you're almost a little boastful of it. You think you guys are doing a good job or not, you know, as good a job as you can possibly do. Nobody's perfect. Uh, tell me a little bit about it. All right. So I have about 20 years in, I started as an officer at a female facility, worked my way up as a sergeant at a maximum security facility and now um, at the uh, administrative level, um, you know, so the what kind of prisoners are there, by the way, uh, would you mind? Maximum, maximum security. I'm at the highest level. Wow. Um, so, so in, in my experience and it's been pretty well, I've worked at four facilities by the way. Um, so it's been pretty well-rounded. Having said that, I think when you start to get into correctional management, you start to see the needs of the house. You start to see how all the departments start to connect to kind of facilitate the needs of the inmates. So technically when I was, uh, like let's say when I was custody, it was more about the needs of that department. As you start to move up, it's more about the needs of what the house needs to do to be successful. So once I started to see what the vision statement is, it's a matter of now going back to my front line, connecting them to that vision statement, and then carrying out what's expected. Now, granted, that's part of what correctional management is about, right? We have to translate mm-hmm. a message that gets investment and buy-in. Most of the time, sad to say, when there's inconsistency in leadership, once you get people to understand a message, new leadership comes in, the message shifts, and you know, you wind up trying to do what Connie said, trying to bring everything back to some level of status quo. But did I have have I seen things in my career um, that I did not agree with, of course, and, I, and I've done my steps to do what I had to do to make sure that that behavior was eliminated. Um, but on the opposite end, I can honestly say that I saw behavior that uh, totally is in line with what the department is trying to push, which is more towards rehabilitation and transition. You know, that's what that's what all agencies are pushing towards. Now they're pushing towards rehabilitation and transition. That That's the key. So now that when you know what the vision is at the highest level, my job is to facilitate that as best I can to make sure that all the departments that can aid in that vision succeed. So um, but I have seen the both. I, I've seen I, I've seen both sides. of spectrum. Why do prisons become factionalized? Why is it that as soon as people go to prison, well, I suppose part of the answer I know is because people factionalize in life, whether they're in prison or not. But it seems to be hardened somewhat in prisons where I don't know Latinos are over here, and 
you know, white dudes are over there and African-Americans are over there. And in fact, they actually uh, harden their sense of uh, of their grouping when they are in prisons. Uh, Does that happen to what extent and why does that happen? It depends on where you're at. Like in California, where a lot of the gangs originated, uh, Aryan Brotherhood, uh, Black Guerrilla Family, whatnot, they, they originate on race. Uh, again, you have the the only really separation is the West, the Nuestra Familia, the Norteños and the Serenos. Uh, those are two Mexican groups, but they kind of rival off of their uh, locations. Uh, but having said that, some will factionalize based on race because that's where they feel the survival is. Some facilities, they will connect. Wait, wait, wait. To survival. Their- Survi- you just used an interesting word. That's where they think survival is. What are they having to survive for? What, no, what I mean is that when uh, you're inside a prison set and a lot of the inmates, they connect based on race. So having said that, in their effort to survive, they connect to people that are closest to them, you know, in likeness, if you will, because they believe that's where they're going to get the most loyalty. So I believe that if, let's say I was in a California prison, maybe originally my my, my biggest sense of loyalty are going to come from people that are African-American or a Latino, depending on what I am. Now, if you are in, let's say... Uh, uh, I, my state specifically, whatever it is, a lot of the inmates that may factionalize would be related to the same gang. So they would go by their uh, their affiliation to the gang, which could supersede race. And those gangs, I imagine, can get pretty darn dangerous, right? I mean, once you get to the point where you're a gang, that means you're going to be almost uh, aggressive by nature, right? That's what gangs do. Well, I, I don't know if that's... So here's the thing. So right now, the... Facilities are more open than they ever were before, so you're going to have more interactions with the inmate population than done in the past. Uh, inmates do have more rights now, um, so they're allowed out more. They're allowed programming, uh, rec, stuff like that. So you're going to have a lot great, a lot more interaction. Now, you have a lot of dorm settings that are open, which gives the inmates the ability to connect. Uh, so our biggest thing really in corrections is inmates are going to connect regardless. I mean, you can't put rival gangs together in open areas because they're not going to get along. So what winds up happening is the officer on the floor is going to wind up having to navigate through a big gang that's connected. Hmm. So they're always going to be outnumbered. But with that said, our biggest concern, because technically we, we could always have opportunities to deal with the inmates as individuals. So we could pull them away from their homies and then we could chat with them and hopefully build some relationship with them that, carries weight when they're with the group, but you can't address them when they're with the group. You could do it more of an isolated fashion. But our biggest concern, and this actually is unique, is in 2017, we had a riot uh, in uh, Delaware. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wind up taking the life of a sergeant named Floyd, who later was posthumously promoted to a, a lieutenant. And the biggest concern we had was that as we were trying to mitigate the issue, Um, inmates had access to cell phones and stuff and they were promoting everything that was happening on social media. So the public, when they were reading through the messages, they were justifying the negative behavior. Uh, And what happened was that the inmates used that justification to go ahead and commit further crimes within that facility, wind up killing that sergeant in a very, very brutal way. So our biggest concern, yeah, our biggest concern is not so much the Image uniting because it's going to happen. I mean, unfortunately, you're working in dorms or some of them could already come in united. Our biggest concern is when they unite for a cause um, that is something that's rather, um, uh, I'm thinking of the word, united for a cause that's something more of a threat more than anything else. Like yeah. You don't want them uniting and feeling justified over something that can threaten the facility. And I, I think that's the biggest concern. Talk to me a little bit, if you could, Connie, about the problem of something which is, well, somewhat normal in all human beings, and that is sex. What do you do when you have a prison that is full of only men and, uh, you know, uh, suddenly, as Freud would say, they have uh, certain needs and the situation must be very, very difficult to uh, manage, I would imagine, no? (laughs) So, yes, um... Facilities, like I think, like that's just a reality, right? Um, I know that there are certain facilities that have put in place a sort of this harm reduction model, like trying to not necessarily giving the nod that it's okay to have sex, but it's kind of acknowledging that there is some very risky behavior that's happening, and they're trying to teach the offenders how to be safe in that risky behavior, Mm. right? Um, 
as a as a non-uniform staff, I, I didn't have to kind of walk through the housing units and have to see inmates in the midst of their um, their activities. Mm, um, sexual <laughs> but I'm sure there are officers, it- female officers, male officers, whether in a male or female facility that have had the uncomfortable experience of walking in or seeing inmates having sex. Let, let me ask you this question. Is it is it safe to say or even fair to say that a person who's never had sex with someone of their own sex is more apt to do so when they end up in a prison where all the people who are there in that prison are of their own sex? Well, we've we've heard it, right? We've heard it many times. Some some people are gay for the stay. Um, that's what they say internally. Say that again. Gay for the stay. Yes. Gay, gay for the stay and straight out the gate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't know it was uh, colloquialized, but that's that's fascinating. <laughs> well, is is there truth to it? I guess is is the question. Is there truth to that? So I, I, I personally believe there is some truth to it. Yes. Okay. Um, and I've talked to inmates who confirmed, right? Like, oh, this is my working in a female facility. Oh, this is my girl. Right. But mm. this this person has a husband at home. Right. Like wow. and it's kind of this is how they're passing the time. Right. Depending on, you know, they want to be able to relate. They want to be able to connect they, they are still looking for that sense of belonging, like the human need is still there and it doesn't go away because they're incarcerated. And so could there's that be, a level. Could, could, could that be uh, minimized somewhat if there were a better opportunity for family visits, maybe even conjugal visits or uh, is that difficult in some facilities, maybe more so than others? Uh, Anthony, why don't think, you pick up this this one for yeah, me? Yeah, I, I, I think in prison, technically, some sex isn't always for enjoyment. It's active aggression as well. Ooh. Uh, there are going to be some inmates that have pred- that are predators uh, that just and that's, that's what they do. What you just yeah, described. That's rape, yes. Yeah, that's rape. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, to be honest with you, there are some facilities that allow that. Uh, I'm not against it. Uh, but again, I think the inmates have to be filtered and they don't allow rape. No, they don't allow rape. Did you no, not allow rape. Sorry. We're yeah. talking about the, what? yeah, wait, wait, wait a second. Yeah. Conjugal what, visits. what did the you just say? <laughs> no, no, hold on. Hold on. That, I just gave you your argument right now. Hold on a second. No, I meant conjugal visits. Well played. Okay. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. So family can visit. Visits. A wife can come and see her husband and they give him a, yeah, a safe that, space that where yeah, they can well be together. Right. Yeah, so I, I believe uh, conjugal visits, if it can help towards the inmates' rehabilitation, um, I believe it matters. But you also have to filter the inmates. There are some facilities that actually have father-daughter dances. But again, you have to go through a serious filter uh, to make sure that the inmate meets a, a very strict criteria. I would say the same thing here. Um, and also, How, how crucial is that, by the way? How important is it for that inmate to maintain a relationship with his family in whatever way possible, but most importantly, of course, physically, not just where they make they get to make a call think, once in a while, but where they actually have a place where they can see them once a week. I think it matters uh, for a couple of reasons. I think one, it helps them solidify the relationship with their loved one, because usually the loved one on the street uh, is also dealing with that loss of intimacy. So I, I do believe that there's some connection uh, that helps them with their relationship with their loved one. But also, here's another good thing, too. But, but do the prisons do that? But do the prisons allow... Not do, all prisons. Do they encourage that? Not, not all. No, not yeah. all prisons. See, that's but a, I will, that's I will say, Family reunification is always important, right? And so many facilities, that is an initiative that is a focus, family reunification. And they try to make sure, because we know part of the recidivism impact is based on not having strong social supports in the community, not having strong connections in the community. So they make it a Mm. a point to allow for individuals to stay connected to family. And that may come in the form of conjugal visits. That may come in the form of contact visits when they have a regular visit coming in. It it may vary depending on the facility and, and that person's crime. Yeah, and if I could add the uh, what Connie's saying, um, remember the the conjugal visit also has to serve a greater purpose, which means that you're not just allowing the inmate to have a girlfriend there. You know, they should be someone that could be a, a family, like I would say, a wife 
or uh, I wouldn't even go as far. I wouldn't even say a mother of. I, I think there has to be some some commitment that can mm. be proven because again, you're looking to how does this benefit the family as a whole? Because even in the end, the the social service, the providers, what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to do whatever they can. If they facilitate change on this individual inside the prison setting, the change only matters if they can get the family involved in what needs to be done. So it's never going to be an isolated fashion. So anytime that we can get those components together, because the family is going to be a big support in that change. So anytime mm. that we can have that higher purpose and it puts them, like Connie said, the family reunification, uh, that carries a lot of weight because that gives us extra, um, mm. extra resources for us to utilize. Uh, when the inmate starts to fall back, we know of certain things that we can utilize, including the family who may have a greater influence on the inmate. It would seem to me if, if I were running a prison, I would want to make sure there are things that are almost carrot and stick. And anytime I can use a carrot, that is, if you continue to be like this, we're going to allow you to be with your family once a week. If you continue to do this, we're going to give you this privilege and that privilege and that privilege. So there, there's always a reward at the end of the day for good behavior. And if that is almost systematized, I imagine it is, it works much better than just the stick, right? Right. So the prison systems run on a loss first gain mentality. Uh, the reward system actually doesn't work so much, but I get what you're saying, though. Uh, but if I could just explain. Of course. So inmates have got accustomed to certain things in their life that custody uh, for security reasons to maintain good behavior. We have the ability to take away in their effort to motivate them to gain it back hmm. uh, through effort and positive behavior. Now, with that said, um, there's a balance here, too, because visits. Visits are both rehabilitative because you need them as a resource, but it could also be a tool we utilize. So Connie had mentioned before contact visits. Now, if you by chance take advantage of contact visits, let's say the smuggling contraband or whatnot, then we could always make the visit um, uh, non-contact. You know, I mean, there's ways that we can give them something to earn these privileges back because the last thing we want to do, to be honest with you, mm. is cut off those resources that are going to help us help the inmate. So we monitor our system based on loss and gain. And I figure it, it helps staff because if we don't. So here's another concern. And I know you're probably not going to like this part, but the more we <laughs> Yeah, it is what it is. But it's, well, fair, it's, it's like fair. we've been buddies uh, for a, for a month now. No, 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 I know. I, I, you you know what I'm thinking. Here, and you know, like. <laughs> yeah. So so here. But but it's all fairness. I understand we're passionate about what we represent. So privileges versus rights. Believe it or not, there are certain things that that remain privileges that the inmates have value that give us an ability to control uh, their negative behavior. Once those privileges become rights and we can't take it away, we can't control their negative behavior. Mm. You know, yeah. so if people make visit, it's a right, a contact visits automatically a right, then we can't go ahead and navigate that if they mess up. Like I'm not saying stuff like, but you have to decide, okay, are, uh, let's, let's play that game. I imagine food. That's not a privilege. That should be a right. They should, they should be allowed to eat. Breathing, breathing air is is a right. Uh, a, 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 you know, a, a clean environment uh, without you know roaches and rats, etc. That's a right. Uh, privileges is you know you are have a right to get a job working in a place where other people may not get a job because we don't trust them. That's a privilege, right? I would say, so believe it or not, jobs in some facilities are going to be uh, automatic now because you have to give the inmate a chance to earn some money. Um, but having said that, um, usually there's default jobs like sell uh, sand and stuff like that. I would say the privileged jobs would be the ones that pay mm. a little bit more, like kitchen workers and stuff like that in some facilities. I can't talk for all. I would say a privilege would be TV. Um you know, contact visits could be a privilege, not visits in general. Visits are probably leaning more towards a right as we move forward. Mail is a right. Can't hold the inmates mail. Um, you know, uh, even phone could be a privilege at some point. If the inmate is using the phone for, um, you know, criminal activity, you could take away the phone. Oh, sure. No, of course. Right. Of course. Yeah, I, I totally. But health care is a right. Health care is, right. is a right. Yeah. You, yes. you, you, and, you know, uh We've seen cases. There was one just this week here in South Florida where uh, an inmate was denied that health care. He had a broken neck, told everybody he had a broken neck. Apparently the guards, the 
In this case, we'll call them guards because I don't like the way they acted. And they denied him the right, and he died. And it's and it's all right there, prima facie. Uh, what do you what do you say when something like that happens? How do you explain something like that? Just bad apples in the system? No, you you well. First off, what I would do, and I'm, and then maybe Connie, I don't want to cut her off, but first, what I would do is. So if we had an incident like this that happened and as correctional management, you find out the first thing you're going to do is uh, you issue the investigation. And because of the dangers behind what happened, the inmates rights were violated. Obviously, yeah. everybody's probably going to get suspended immediately because you don't want them working around the inmates at this point. Uh, medical will be a whole nother concern. Connie could probably touch on that. Um, but I'm looking to hold people accountable because the system isn't about what I saw in that video and my belief in my belief, the system isn't about that. So what my job is going to be is uh, I'm probably not going to have faith in what they did. I seen the video already. So I'm going to separate them immediately Mm. because that's not related to what the mission, what I'm trying to carry out the vision I'm trying to carry out, which is the safety and security of the inmate population. I think the big thing here is what I do in my reaction to this incident. You know, at the end of the day is, you know, when you're in administration, yeah, you could walk around as much as you can, but you're not there 24 hours a day there. You know, I, I, you're not going to oversee every action they do. But once you find out and you know about it, well, now you're responsible for it. So mm-hmm. having said that, the only thing I could do at that point is let the investigation go. And then when it comes back and they're found guilty of this, I go 100 percent all effort, criminal charges, administrative char- charges, civil charges, whatever I could do to make sure that people know that this isn't what the system's about. And I I'll guarantee here's the unique thing, by the way, because it does spread a negative image on the profession. There'll be others that will support management that work in the profession because they know that this is going to be something that's going to wind up Hmm. putting a bad definition on the positive work that we do behind the wall. And then you have the medical side of it all, too. You stand up for your profession well. Both of you do. Anthony uh, Ganji has a book. It's called Correctional Manipulation. Connie's book is called, by the way, it's Connie Eileen, by the way, and her book is called The Cage Was Her Cocoon. This is good reading, gives you a perspective you don't usually hear about the prison system uh, in the United States. And uh, I want to thank both of you for this uh, conversation, for taking us uh, through this and and telling us what it's like from your perspective behind those uh, bars, as uh, we often say. It's what we do here. I mean, Rick Sanchez News is uh, our marquee show here on Agua Media. We talk about Latino issues and we talk about uh, truths, especially from a journalistic standpoint. That's why we like to bring you truths like these that we've discussed today. You can find us, of course, on uh, I. Uh, you can find us, of course, on Spotify or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you happen to be watching a clip from this show on uh, YouTube, do me a favor and subscribe. My thanks to my guests, and once again, as we always like to say, Dale, andale, y vamos con todo. Agua.